The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Before we get started on the last section, are there any leftover questions from the earlier discussion? Hi, John. I have a question. Um, you read some statements or some quotes from various Dharma teachers. And the question that I have is, is that do you think that maybe some of those ways of languaging um, are misunderstandings of the Buddhist teachings or are they phrases that maybe we're not aware of uh, co-opting how we might phrase something because of the influence of these romantic um, ways of thinking so that um, perhaps there's an understanding but in the articulating of that understanding maybe we use that romantic language to express it as as opposed to a misunderstanding. So that's my question is is there some combination or what's your thought on that? You'd have to ask the teachers. <laughs> but the problem is once you exp- express it that way the expressions take on a life of their own. And someone picking up the book they might not know what the teacher's understanding was. Um, some of the stuff that's said there I'd say if the person really is awakened they would never say that even as a way of trying to appeal to other people or trying to bring the Dharma into Western culture. Because the way ex- they're expressing is actually counteracting, I mean, goes against the, what the message of the Dharma is. There are other ways of skillful, you know, skillful expression of you know, the principles of the Dharma. I mean, I'd have to be sitting up here talking and polying to you if, I, <laughs> if we're trying to get it as close as possible to the text. Um, so in translating it into English, there is a, a certain element of change that goes already. But you want to be able to express it in a way that that expression is not going to come back and bite you afterwards if the person has been practicing with that assumption all along. So it's kind of an awareness of how you're languaging if 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 that's if that's something where you're you're making an interpretation to to be careful about how that is expressed in right, terms yeah, of how that might how that might ripple out. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. Okay. So my understanding is that um, the experience of oneness is part of the path of... Is it, is it accurate to say part of the path of Buddhism? So um, someone today asked me, a non-Buddhist asked me, is oneness a tenet of Buddhism? And I'm just wondering, in all the strands of Buddhism, and is, it, um, is it spoken as a goal in any of... in Buddhism in general, or... You'd have to ask an expert on Mahayana. Are there passages in Mahayana where they talk about oneness as the goal? Because as I was telling you, there was a there was a blog on the website there. There's this guy who was talking about the, the, the romanticization of Zen and the idea of what monism, i.e. the idea that it's all one... Um, and he's questioning that as whether it's an appropriate interpretation of Zen. Go ahead. There's one stream of Mahayana that um, gives birth to notions of something called Buddha nature. 
which is framed as uh, an intrinsic quality within each person that uh, is intrinsically awakened, is covered over. You can't see it, but you can get to it. If you get rid of the cover, covered over part, then um, there's radiant wisdom and awareness floods your being. Um, there are other Mahayanas who say, no, 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 yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that doesn't make sense. It's not consistent with other Buddhist teachings. Mm-hmm. And so those who, who are interested in the notion of Buddha nature may also be interested in notions of oneness. Mm-hmm. In texts that don't talk about that, like uh, Perfection of Wisdom text, Prajnaparamita, Diamond mm-hmm. Sutra, and so forth, mm-hmm. I never see that, yeah. mm-hmm. ever. So some, some elements, but not all universally. No. Mm-hmm. It's a request, not a question. Okay. And already, I already sent you this request by email, but since you know, we're, we're getting to the end, mm-hmm. um, it's a question about happiness mm-hmm. as presented by uh, usually Westerners, but now Asians who have had the pizza effect. I think of, of dealing with Westerners who see their concern with happiness. Let me give you one example, and I'm afraid I'll name a name. Okay. So um, there is a translation of the Diamond Sutra under Thich Nhat Hanh's name mm-hmm. from, from the Chinese version. And if you follow along and you look at the Chinese, the translation is idiosyncratic, is the polite way to put it. Idiosyncratic in that whenever the word for merit arises in the text, mm-hmm. the translator substitutes the word happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think he does that for a Western audience. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that this is a major issue in presenting Buddhist teachings to the West that, that I certainly don't see in the Chinese tradition. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could talk about uh, some of that. Okay, in the Pali Canon, the word sukha, which is the one that's usually translated as happiness, has a wide range of meanings expressed from you know, pleasure, well-being, ease, bliss. Um, and nirvana, at one point, is said to be the ultimate happiness. Um, of course, the word happiness is never, closely, is never really precisely defined. And part of that, I think, is because your notion of what real happiness is is going to develop as you go along the path. But it definitely is used as, a, as an incentive to practice. That we're trying to find a, a sukha that is beyond conditions, that is going to be truly trustworthy. So there is that element. And I can see where that translator is coming from because there's a passage where they, the Buddha says, don't be afraid of acts of merit because that's another word for happiness. Another name for happiness. So I can see where the, the connection might come through. Not in the Diamond Sutra, no, no. It's no. very clearly talking about Yeah, yeah. But, um, so I, I think you know, in the original text, they are talking about happiness quite consistently. Um, and there's some, there's that passage about the, the hedonist who comes to see the Buddha. And they talk about happiness, and the Buddha says, you're, you're so far from understanding happiness, I don't know where to start. And so he asks, you know, may I, you will please teach me. And well, the, but first the Buddha asks me, what is your, what is your definition of happiness? What is your de- definition of, of true health? And the, Buddha says, and the guy says, well, because when this body is ha- healthy, then we're happy. And the Buddha says, okay, you're blind. 
But then you finally teach them, okay, what kind of happiness would be a truer happiness? So it's not that you're not aiming at happiness, it's just that you're trying to refine your sense of what would qualify as a genuine happiness. Now for them, happiness is, for the Buddha, it's basically an absence of disturbance. When the mind is totally at peace, that's true happiness. Question in the back. Got a, a nice word, happiness. It's like the word love in English. What does it mean? Uh, happen, happenstance. I mean, I'm allowed to. It's like happen. It, it means good fortune. Mm-hmm. Lucky stars. Mm-hmm. Well, the Buddha takes the word and gives it another meaning. Uh, but we, the English word, he doesn't use the English word happiness, though. He uses sukha. Mm-hmm. The problem is with our use of happiness and all the connotations it has. Mm-hmm. Well, it had funny connotations in Pali, too. What what word? Well, f- physical pleasure. You're just you know having having nice signs, uh, sign, sight, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations. That was happiness for some people. So you've got to use the, the language at some point. You have to know what you're saying, though. Yeah, yeah. Jim, what you need is a mic that floats. <laughs> What keeps coming back for me is that these romantics, in a certain way, it sounds like it's a half, it's a handful of people over a handful of years mm-hmm. that came up with some ideas mm-hmm. that have somehow lingered. Mm-hmm. And I guess what's interesting for me is what were the forces that brought those into being and keep them going through time? Well, what what keeps them going through time is. This one, the sense of they tackled the question of what is it like to be a finite being in an infinite universe. And we're still in that infinite universe. And so we keep going back to some of those issues. And there's only so many ways that you can answer that question. And they pretty much covered the range, one. Secondly, there's a certain appeal to the idea that you can trust what's coming up inside you and that there are no dangers out there. Um, especially when we know that we live in this universe where you know, the fact that we have water, food, clothing, shelter right now depends on a lot of conditions that are totally beyond our control. And how do you live in a universe like that without going crazy? With fear. You have to have some sense of trust that it's somebody out there is you know, looking after us, or at the very least it's all for, it's all for the good. Um, even though that may go against you know, what you see all around, you know, what, what has to be done in order to keep this network going is some pretty horrible stuff. But when you, you have this sense deep, when you try to convince yourself that it's all okay, and there is kind of a safety, and there's kind of an innate goodness to people, it's a reassuring thought. Or the other, the other side, which is that kind of goes more with Navalis, i.e. the idea that, okay, the universe is pretty unknown, but the challenge of meeting up with the present moment in an authentic way, in a, um, un, you know, a way of seeing the wonder of the world around it, that should in, in itself be enough. For some people, that's, that they find that nourishing. So the sense, there's a kind of a, an appeal to how to deal with this basic fear that comes in. This infant, this, the interconnected universe here is pretty unstable and it's big, way beyond our powers to control. <coughs> So how do you find a sense of well-being in the midst of that? And, th- and this is one way of answering that issue. Now the Buddha's answer is, get out. 
it's going to crush you otherwise. Well, I was thinking about in terms of um, spiritual authority. Mm-hmm. Like at the time that the, this group was together, I'm guessing that before that, there there was sort of this sense that you didn't get to that you had to have authorities intervening between you and this infinite universe. Well, but you know, the Thirty Years' War, especially in Germany, a lot of that idea with the authority of the church and the state was pretty much eroded because people began to see. I mean, this is what happens when you allow religions to, you know, religious authorities to start insisting on orthodoxy too strictly. People end up killing one another. And so, even prior to the Romantics, there was an idea that we need to put that beside us. But the Romantics came in, it was this, this shift in that the universe was kind of manageable and understandable to this shift that the universe is really infinite beyond our comprehension. That's what actually brought about what was particularly romantic about the Rom- Romantics. The idea that, okay, the universe as a, the story of the universe is probably incomprehensible to us, but it is worthwhile to create our own story and have a sense of sort of artistic wholeness and in the midst of doing that. In other words, looking for your, your justification and your satisfaction in life in the present moment, because that's all you really know you got. And that aspect of you know, the universe is still around. Now, there, of course, there have been attempts since then by religious authorities to come and reassert themselves, but the romantic strand is already there in their culture and gives you a handle to use against them. Do you think that was part of what um, influenced the movements of the 60s, kind of questioning authority and kind of turning more towards one's own sense of uh, right and wrong? Well, I'm sure the Romantics had a role to play, played a role in that, if not directly, then indirectly through other, other thinkers that they influenced. Okay, let's look at some of the readings. Huh, we've got an hour. <laughs> okay, I just want to touch briefly on some of the readings and delve a little bit more deeply into others. Um, first passage, the Buddha emphasizes that this is what he talks about, which is the issue of stress and the cessation of stress. Sometimes you see this translated as, I, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And then there's some discussion of how suffering and the end of suffering can be one thing. But generally, the Buddha didn't say one thing, but it's two things he's teaching here, stress and the cessation of stress. Um, passage two, he goes down to the list of questions that he doesn't teach because they do not lead to the ending of stress, including questions of whether the cosmos is eternal, not eternal, finite, infinite, and the soul and the body are the same, the soul is one thing, the body another, whether an awakened person exists, does not exist, both exist and doesn't exist, or neither after death. And basically, he says, you avoid these questions because they're not connected with the goal. In other words, they really don't help with the question of the end of suffering. It's best to put them aside. They're a waste of time. This is the sutta, by the way, where the Buddha gives the analogy of the person shot with the arrow. You know, he said, before you pull out the arrow, I want to know what the arrow was made of, what kind of feathers, what kinds of wood, or the cast of the person who shot me. Um, and then we'll talk about pulling out the arrow. Of course, the person's going to die. Um, Going a little bit more detail, passage number three lists some of the questions that the Buddha says are inappropriate. Look at pa- paragraph two. 
These are some of the inappropriate questions. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or else you're inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is this being come from? Where is it bound? The Buddha basically says those questions are best put aside. Now remember, the Romantics were mainly interested in that question of, am I, am I not, what am I, how do I fit in the universe? Which is another way of asking, what am I? And the Buddha goes on to list, these are some of the views that arise as, as a result, if you f pursue those questions. Now some of these sound like questions that the Buddha himself addresses. You know, was I in the past? The doctrine of, re of rebirth tends to assume that the answer is yes. But the question is, if you pursue that very far, then you start getting into the question, well, what kind of I could have been in the past that's the same or different from what I am now? That's where the Buddha says you go wrong. I.e., you know, what is it in me that goes from one life to the next lifetime? That's a question he puts aside. The question of whether there was some karma in the past, he says, you can take that on as a working hypothesis, but just leave it at that extent and move on. Okay, but these are some of the ideas that come up as a tangle of views. The view that I have a self arises in you as true and established, or the view I have no self, or the view it is precisely by means of self that I perceive self, or it's precisely by means of self that I perceive not self, or it's precisely by means of not self that I perceive self. Or this one, this very self of mine, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions is a self of mind that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. And all of these, he says, are a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. In other words, you're not freed from suffering and stress. And the questions that the Buddha does have you focus on are, this is stress, this is the origination of stress, this is the cessation of stress, this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. If you attend appropriately in these three ways, then these ways, then three fetters are abandoned: self-identification view, doubt, and grasping at habits and practices. So, this question of coming to the assumption that I have no self is is a fetter of views. Buddha has you put that aside. So, questions about what are you, whether you exist or not, the Buddha has you put those things aside because they're irrelevant to the question of how you're going to put an end to suffering. Any questions on that passage? And so, the, uh, the, excuse me. The so, and so the idea behind your bringing this up right now is that um, is that the German romantics were concerned these questions, with yeah. with. You know these questions where right. that where the Buddha said, "Don't we just, just put them aside?" Yeah. Mm -hmm. Similarly, there's some people who will say that when we're talking about um, the the view of not self, that the Buddha would say, "Okay, your five aggregates are not self, but he wants you to get rid of that view because that then will get you in touch with your larger self." And the next passage is the one that approaches that, because he says there are actually three. Four kinds of view. Either that myself is possessed of form and finite, myself is possessed of form and infinite, 
my, uh, myself is formless and finite, and myself is formless and infinite. Okay, um, a formless, infinite self, he's also rejecting. Infinite self, i.e., you are one with the cosmos, or you're the spirit animating the cosmos, or you're one with that spirit. He's rejecting that, in addition to the smaller self. So it's not just your small self that he's saying no to. He's also saying, you know, the, the bigger self, the bigger interconnected self. And vice versa. Some people say, well, the Buddha's, he's saying no to the idea of a bigger self, but he's not denying the fact that you have your regular self. Well, your regular self, however you define it, any of these four, four ways, would come under the kind of self that he basically says no to. So he's not leaving any room for any kind of self um, as, as something that you would want to hold on to finite or infinite. I mean, form, uh, form, a form and finite would be your body, identifying with your body. Possessed of form and infinite would be the idea that, okay, yourself has the form of the body, but it is infinite, like an infinite consciousness. Um, the idea that yourself is formless and finite would be like you know, the idea of the, the Christian soul. You're, you have this little finite soul that wants to enjoy God for, for eternity. But the soul itself has no form. Or being formless and infinite, that would be infinite consciousness. Or being one with God. And so the Buddha probably phrased these different ideas of the self that he was knocking down because these ideas had been floating around in the, in the area where he lived and in the time that he lived. So these ideas that the German romantics came up with were still... Just recycling old material, basically. Very old. Because <laughs> one of the things you learn in intellectual history after a while is that there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the points I want, to, want you to take away was sometimes you hear these new romantic ideas of Buddhism being formulated as something sort of new and daring and radical. They're actually reactionary. They're trying to go back to, this is the way we've always believed things, and this is the way we're going to keep on believing things. Don't tell us any different. That's what it comes down to. Sometimes you see, well, the Buddha was only talking about views of self that were around at his time, but not some of the other more advanced views of self that we have now. They had everything back then. This, this list of the four, dif- or the four different kinds. You can find all of them in the Upanishads. I mean, sometimes we think we're told the Upanishads talk about you know the unity between yourself and the One, as being the view, their one view of self. But you look through the Upanishads; they talk about the self in lots of different ways, define it in lots of different ways. And you can find all of them falling under this particular rubric. Okay. Passage five makes pretty much the same point. You can, middle of the first paragraph, you can assume form to be the self, or the self as possessing form, or form as in the self, or the self as in form. Okay, form here would mean your body. Um, form to be the self, equating yourself with the body. In other words, you know, when this body dies, that's it. You're out. Or the self as possessing form is that you have this self that owns the body. Or form as in the self. 
In other words, you have this infinite self and this body as functioning within that much larger self. Or, or self as in form, is the, the idea of the little homunculus that looks out your eyes and listens out your ears, kind of that idea of self. Again, the Buddha is going down and saying, there's every kind of way you could define this, you just you don't want to make that assumption. So he's, he's not being, he's not going to let you hold on to any idea of self, regardless of how you define it, finite or infinite. Um, and the reason for this is number six. If you stay obsessed with form, that's what you're measured by, or limited by. In other words, no matter how you define yourself, there's going to be a limitation. I mean, this this has, has come up recently. I've talked to some people who say that, you know, given what a human being is, a human being could never know the unconditioned in this lifetime. And the Buddhist teacher said this to me. And they're basically starting out with, okay, definition, this is how you define a human being. From that definition, you then argue as to what a human being can and cannot know, which places a huge limitation on you. The Buddha's way was the other way around. Let's explore what a human being can know, or what, what can be known, let's put it that way. And, then, and they say, okay, uh, the unconditioned can be known. Let's go back and recheck our ideas of what a human being is. And no matter how you define the human being, that would get in the way, so you might as well just erase those definitions. I went on to tell this person, he was saying, well, I can only teach Buddhism in line with what I, I perceive, and all I perceive is just, you know, that the human being can know through the senses, and this whole idea of an unconditioned you just have to put aside. And I told him, it's like a person who can see only three letters at a time, and you see the word antelope, see, and you recognize ant. So the Buddha's talking about ants, that makes sense. And so you can come up with the Buddhist theory on ants and become an expert on the Buddhist theory on ants. And then someone comes along and tells you, there's more to the word than ant, there's elope. You think about that for a minute, you say, wait a minute, ants don't elope, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'll stick with ants, okay. <laughs> so. He didn't appreciate it. What? <clears throat> <laughs> no. <laughs> So what the Buddha is saying here is, however you define yourself, you're always going to be limiting yourself. So the question of who you are, that's best put aside. Yes? But what do you think of the um, idea that, sure, there's a self. I mean, I'm here, you're over there, mm -hmm. separated by distance. We're obviously not the same mm -hmm. thing. So there's a self, but it's uh, so constantly changing that whatever you point to, that's not it, or as soon as you define it, a moment later, it's, that's inaccurate. So maybe think of the self, that there is a self, but think of it as a process instead of anything you can define. Well, you can think of it as a process, and again, it's not one thing, there are different processes going on. And the purpose of this is to have you look at the process of self-identification to see where it's causing problems. There are certain points where self-identification is useful. I mean, the Buddha has you talk about, has you think about the self as its own mainstay. Um, if you love yourself, then you will act in line with these, these principles. So the, the idea of a self is not necessarily a bad idea in, in itself. But once you start asking, well, what is the self? 
and you try to start to define it, then you get into trouble. One. Two, any of the things that could form the foundation of your idea of a self. As soon as you get latched onto those things, you're also in trouble. So you have to question that. So by trying to get away from the question of what is yourself, he wants you to focus on, well, when you create a sense of self, how are you doing that, and where's the stress involved in that? That's a useful, that's a useful issue. But again, we're getting out of this question of what is the self's relationship to the universe, and you're looking more at how does this sense of self get evolved? When is it used? And then you're looking at it as karma, which is the metaphysical proposition that the Buddha did talk about an awful lot. And, then like, and the question around karma is, okay, when is this particular kind of action skillful and when is it not? So what kinds of ideas of self are useful at certain times, and when are they not useful? And what ideas of self are never useful? But once you start trying to pin down, I mean, even defining self as process, eventually you're going to have to let go of that too. But in the meantime, you learn how to use it. Okay. In passage number seven, the Buddha attacks the idea that the self is the cosmos is the self after death, this I will be constant, this I will be constant, permanent, eternal, not subject to change. I will stay just like that for an eternity. And this, it's basically, his criticism is based on the idea, okay, where there's the self, there has to be belonging to myself. Okay, now if you are one with the cosmos, then everything should belong to you, right? <laughs> have, you, have you ever tested that thesis? <laughs> That's why the Buddha says it's, it's a useless idea, because if you identify with the cosmos, you're not looking at the process by which you create a sense of self, which is what he wants you to look at. So it's not a useful idea. Okay. Passage number eight. This is when someone comes to him and says, so does everything exist? And, he, and, he's, and the Buddha says, everything exists is the senior form of cosmology. Then does everything not exist? Everything does not exist is the second form of cosmology. Okay. Is everything a oneness? Everything is a oneness is the third form of cosmology. Is everything a plurality? Everything is a plurality is the fourth form of cosmology. And then he says, avoiding these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dharma via the middle. And he goes through dependent core arising. Now, what's interesting about going into dependent core arising, one of the questions people often like to ask about dependent core arising is, is this happening on a cosmic scale or is it happening within the psychological scale? In other words, is it happening out there in the world or is it happening in here in the mind? And the Buddha basically says, instead of trying to put dependent core arising into those frameworks, what you want to do is take dependent core arising as the framework and then put your sense of self and sense of the world in that framework. So it can operate on any time scale and in any space scale. Because when he identifies, when he talks about the world, <clears throat> that comes under the sixth sense media. There's a point where he, the Buddha says, when, when the Dathagata says world, he means eye and sights, ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and tastes, body, tactile sensations, mind and ideas. So he's breaking the world down, not into the world out there, but your sense of the world of your senses. That's the world that he says is useful to think about. And he's, here he's showing how that sense of the world gets conditioned through ignorance so that it creates suffering. 
So dependent co-arising is the frame. Your sense of the world is meant to fit into that frame. Similarly, your sense of self. Your sense of self comes under clinging. Again, that too is something that is dependently co-arisen. So he's trying to get you to step out of both of those contexts, i.e. putting yourself in the world, and instead of putting your sense of self in the world into the context of how do these things get conditioned in your experience so that they create suffering? And how can you get rid of the ignorance so that you're not creating suffering around these things? Okay, what I just said was a mouthful. But again, the important thing is, okay, which is the context? The context here is dependent core arising, and he wants you to think of things in those terms. And when you're thinking about the world, you say, okay, well, where, do, where does world fit in here? It comes under the sixth sense media, contact. That the, these two things are your sense of the world. But that, in turn, is conditioned by name and form, which is conditioned by consciousness, which is conditioned by fabrications, which is conditioned by ignorance. In other words, fabrication here means the intentional element that goes into your awareness. For the Buddha, awareness is not passive, it's more of an active process. You're conscious because you want to be conscious of things. And you go out and that desire to be conscious is what puts you in contact with things. And that, by the time you've had input at the census, there's a lot of stuff that's already shaped that, based on ignorance. It's similar with your sense of self, which would come under clinging and sustenance down here, and then becoming the bills on that. Okay, you want to see these processes so you can start taking apart the ignorance that turns these things into suffering. So what the Buddha is doing here is he's taking that whole question that the Ranics asked, which is, you know, what is this, what basically is the place of the self in the cosmos? And saying, let's look at it in terms of the processes that would make any sense of self or any sense of cosmos into suffering. And then how do you undo that process? Regardless of how you define the world or regardless of how you define the self. What's the process that makes that suffering? Let's look into that. This is what ties all of this back into that first question, i.e., what is stress and what's the cessation of stress? And finally, in passage 9, I say finally because we'll start for questions after this, okay. um, the ten totality dimensions. He talks about the earth totality, the water totality, the fire totality, wind totality, blue totality, yellow, red, white, space, and consciousness. Above, below, all around, non-dual, immeasurable. Okay. Now, of these ten totality dimensions, this is supreme, when one perceives the consciousness totality above, around, all around, non-dual, immeasurable. In other words, when you have this sense of consciousness of oneness, and there's no duality in that consciousness, just the dimension of consciousness taken as a totality. There are beings who are percipient in this way. And even in the beings who are percipient in this way, there is still aberration, there is change. Seeing this, the uninstructed disciple of the Noble Ones grows disenchanted with that. Being disenchanted with that, he becomes dispassionate toward what is supreme, and even more so, toward what is inferior. So here the, the Buddha is rejecting the idea that an, a non-dual awareness would be the end of suffering, because there's still an element of fabrication there. That's what you've got to look for. So, any questions on any of this?
Where's the where's the where's the mic? What's he referring to in the yellow totality? Is that casinas? Kind of casina practice. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you see the whole world is yellow, all the whole, wor- whole world is luminous and white. You read Machi Gao's biography, I mean, she, there's a point where she goes through the, the white totality, where the whole world is a luminous white. So sometimes that can be induced by actually doing a casina practice, and sometimes it's simply by whatever stage of concentration you're in, that tends to induce that view about the world as a whole. Yeah, so here. Mike? Jim, you've got to work on the technology of a floating mic. <laughs> what does it mean, the um, disenchanted towards the uh, what is supreme and even more disenchanted towards what is inferior. Okay, the supreme totality here would be the totality of consciousness that's non-dual. That's the highest non-duality. And it seemed that that too is fabricated. That's what gives rise to a sense of dispassion. Again, there is that, there is that tendency, once you've arrived there, is to say, oh, this must be it. And then you develop a subtle passion. Well, not subtle, but a very strong passion for it. And it's seeing that, that that too is fabricated. That's what gets you beyond it. That's the point where Mahabua, Ajahn Mahabua realized he had further to go and had to go back and dissect. Seeing that that, that white, that luminous totality or the totality of consciousness was something that was still fabricated. And he noticed that for two reasons. One was that there were variations in the amount of luminosity. And two, the fact that he had to maintain it. That's, those are the two spots where you can see that something is fabricated. In the even more uh, dispassion towards what is inferior was just these lower sensor. levels, the, the red totality, the yellow totality, whatever, would be an inferior one. Yes, Victoria. So this is where Buddhism goes beyond romanticism. Very much so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much, how far they got in even to the consciousness totality. Maybe they had a little tiny taste or something. But the Buddha says, you know, if you, if you, you have to be able to work with it long enough so you can see that it is fabricated. And if you just go out and sort of be one with nature and then respond, you haven't given it enough time to see that it too is conditioned. So, trying to understand, if you get into a state of uh, non-dual awareness with the entire cosmos, feeling one with everything, I guess they're still, you know, a flesh and blood human being mm-hmm. that's having that thought mm-hmm. and that can be attached to it. So that's why it's non-dual and fabricated. Is that not right? only that? Because there's even in just the consciousness of that, there's an element of fabrication. This is where you have to take it back and analyze it in terms of dependent core rising. What's the fabrication that keeps that consciousness going? 
and to see that it's fabricated, one, as I said, it's either you notice that you have to do something to maintain it, or two, you will notice that there are variations in the level of luminosity or the sense of oneness begins to waver a bit. And sometimes you have to watch it for a long, long, long time before you see this. Okay, but I'm, we're giving you warning, you know, sort of four warnings, just in case. Okay. How long? Long enough. <laughs> I mean, some people, some people are really quick, other people are kind of, you know, dense. <laughs> just because you have strong concentration doesn't mean you're immediately going to see these things, you know. <laughs> so, so, overall, there's kind of a paradox here, because... The Vipassana movement, you know, filling a hall like this with people that listen to you, judging from my historical, my own experience, for instance, Mm -hmm. is through these ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You get sucked into Carl Jung or do this or do that, you live through the 60s. Uh, So it's kind of, uh, what do you think of that? I mean, without that, who would go to Buddhism? Who would go to Buddhism, yeah. What kind of platform do you have? Okay. I'm not going to be passing judgment on what brought you here. <laughs> but I am going to pass judgment on, are you still going to hold to these things when you see that they're really not in line with the drama? Give me something better. That's what I'm trying to do, is give you something better. Now, it's, you know, the, the Chinese had this thing they called the Dharma Gate, where, you know, what's going to get you into the Dharma? In a lot of ways, Taoism was what got a lot of Chinese people into the Dharma. And it wasn't until after several generations that they began to realize, wait a minute, the Buddha is not Lao Tzu. They actually thought Lao Tzu had gone to India for a while, taught the barbarians, and it came back garbled. And so they said, we've got to straighten this out and bring it back in line with the original Lao Tzu, right? And then there were some Chinese monks who realized, wait a minute, Buddhism is asking different questions. And this is the important thing, realize it's a different set of questions that are being asked. Instead of trying to figure out what is the original principle of the universe, the question is, where is there suffering? Why are we suffering? What can we do about it? And so that's, that's when Chinese Buddhism really became Buddhism. But the problem is, when you look at the history of Chinese Buddhism, that as it began to de- degenerate in later generations, it, they started going back to the original Dharma Gate. And so what I can see happening in the Western Buddhism is this tendency to start out with the Romantics and their ideas. Finally, wake up to the fact. Well, no, Buddhism is the Dharma is actually asking different questions. We have to take it on its own terms. But there will always be this other element around. <laughs> well, the other one is very marketable right now. I mean, you can see it. <laughs> and the question is, are you suffering enough to want to say, I really want to put an end to suffering? Because what happened in China was that you know the, the Han Empire collapsed. And people suddenly realized, ooh, suffering, big time. They couldn't depend on the family anymore, they couldn't depend on the old institutions anymore. And the Dharma had answers. This is a very simplified version of Chinese history. But (laughs) (laughs) Historically, until the point where the Everyone in the Buddhist monastery was tax-free, and everyone moved into monastery, and the yeah, government yeah. fell down. Eh? Okay, and then the monasteries were, were closed because there was a Taoist empire. Um, there's <laughs> all kinds of stuff was going on. But this is, um, you know, what, you, what brings you to the Dharma is kind of each person's individual issue. 
But there has to come a point you say, wait a minute, I've got to, if I really want to get the most out of this, I should align myself with the questions the Buddha is asking and ask myself those questions. That's the point of today's discussion. Question here. Where's the nearest mic? Uh, I just w- I want to affirm your historical summary. <laughs> I want to add one point, which is there's an assumption that what brought one generation to study Buddhist material is necessary, necessarily the same as what is bringing the next generation or the generation mm-hmm. below, mm-hmm. such as some of my students who are here. Mm-hmm. They're coming with, with from a different direction mm-hmm. than, say, I did in, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think if, if we want to keep it going, we have to understand the environment in which, the mental environment in which they've grown up and mm-hmm. speak to them in those terms. Um, I'm sure there are some changes that are going between generations. Um, one thing I was told was that the younger generation doesn't have any trouble wishing goodwill for themselves. <laughs> Whereas for some, for some reason the older generation was all tied up in knots around this. <laughs> um, and I think that's largely the, the end of the guilt culture in America and it's being replaced by shame culture. That's just a general theory. Uh, however, there are other areas where I think there is kind of a continuity. Um, just two weeks ago I was teaching a class at Dharmapunks down in Los Angeles. And I came across this point that the, you know, the Buddha never taught oneness. And you, know, you saw this look going around the room. And at first nobody said anything. And then during the break, all, so all I heard was this chatter about, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is what we've been told all along. And it was what was you know, giving them a sense of, you know, a sense of well-being. That's, that's a constant. And so after the break we had to say, okay, let's talk about what do you want out of oneness and can it give that to you? So the quest for oneness is still there. What did they say about um, Basically, they said you know, there was a sense of well-being, there was a sense of groundedness that came from that. And again, the issue about moral action depending on a sense of oneness. And it's actually, you can look, there are other good, better ways of grounding your desire to be compassionate than a sense of oneness. And John Sawat had a great comment on this, and he said, you know, if there were we were teaching at IMS, and there was this one guy who was just totally new to the Dharma. Um, he was a telemarketer. <laughs> I don't know why that's relevant. Uh, <laughs> and at one point, halfway through the, the, the retreat, he said, you know, you guys would have a really good religion here with Buddhism if only you had a god that you could fall back on and have a sense of, you know, when, when, when you get weak, there's the god there to support you. And John Swat said, if there were a god who could ordain that if I take a mouthful of food, everybody in the world will get full, I would bow down to that god. And that's one of those statements that you want to remember all your life. Because, <laughs> you know, if, if we really are one, why do we have to struggle over food? Why do we have to fight over food? And why do we have to feed on other beings? You know? You've read... Sirens of Titan? Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut? That should be on everybody's drama reading list. <laughs> there's, one ser- there's one point in the, 
from the novel. It's, it's a crazy novel. Um, but that's, that's the best uh, of all Kurt Vonnegut. Um, the spaceship gets into the planet Mercury, and they get in the middle of Mercury, and Mercury is this big crystal, a honeycomb crystal. And it has living beings, because it's a crystal and it's got one side to the sun and the other side to the infinite cold of space, it's ringing with a kind of a music inside. There's this tone that the crystal always has. And there are these little beings called harmoniums, and they look like kites with suction cups on their little corners. And they're sort of translucent. And they can suck onto the crystal and they can feed off the vibrations of the crystal. They don't have to feed off each other or any other being. You think about, and they have two messages that they send to one another through the crystal. One is, here I am, here I am, here I am. The other one is, so glad you are, so glad you are, so glad you are. <laughs> and you think, that would be a really nice world. You know, we don't have to feed off of beings, you know. And everybody can share, there's infinite enough of crystal vibrations that there's always enough food for everybody. So it's, it's a nice world. Kind of mindless, but it's nice. <laughs> so yeah, if we really were one, we wouldn't have to eat each other. Okay. Yes. I was just thinking that um, one of the things that probably as to the confusion is um, this notion that the Buddha, how he ordered his hot dog from the vendor, Without, well, was one with everything, yeah. but actually someone helped me realize it was uh, plain, unconditioned nibbana. Nibbana. The joke, you know, it's how does the Buddha order his hot dog? Yes, mm-hmm. And it used to be, puns used to be considered a high form of humor, you know. <laughs> okay. Ah, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Passage 10. Just as the footprints of all legged animals are encompassed in the footprint of the elephant, the elephant's footprint is reckoned the foremost among them in terms of size. In the same way, all skillful qualities are rooted in heedfulness, converge in heedfulness, and heedfulness is reckoned the foremost among them. Okay, this is the Buddhist statement about why we behave well, why we behave skillfully. It's not because we are innately good, and he's not saying we're innately bad. We have the, we have the capacity to do anything. There's another passage where the Buddha said, you know, the, the mind is more variegated even than the animal kingdom. You, know, the animal, you think of all the different species that are out there, all the really wild things that animals are. Um, and yet the mind is capable of being more than that. Good or bad. So you can't rely on innate goodness. You can't trust the heart's emotions. You have to test them. To check to see, okay, what's the, you know, you know, the test that the Buddha gave to Rahula? If I act on this, what do I expect the results are going to be? If I expect harm, I'm not going to do it. Or if I found out that I did do harm, I would learn how not to do it again. And that's how you develop how you develop your heedfulness into the purity of your thoughts, words, and deeds. Um, passage eleven is where the Buddha takes on the idea that 
we are returning to a pure childlike state when we practice. Okay. Okay. This is Brajakanga, who is a carpenter, goes to see Ugaha Mana. And Ugaha Mana, who is a Jain ascetic, says, I describe an individual endowed with four qualities as being consummate in what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful, and invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments, which four he does no evil action with his body, speaks no evil speech, resolves on no evil resolve, and maintains himself or herself with no evil means of livelihood. So Panchakanga takes that back and reports it to the Buddha. And then in the last paragraph, the Buddha says to him, In that case, Carpenter, then according to his words, a stupid baby boy lying on its back is consummate in what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful, invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments. For even the thought body doesn't occur to a stupid baby boy lying on its back, so from where would any do any evil action with its body, aside from a little kicking? Julian? <laughs> even the thought speech doesn't occur to it, so from where would it speak any evil speech, aside from a little crying? Even the thought resolve doesn't occur to it, from where would it resolve on any evil resolve, aside from a little bad temper? Even the thought livelihood doesn't occur to it, so from where would it maintain itself with any evil means of livelihood, aside from its mother's milk? Woo! That's an interesting concept. So according to this person, this Ugahan Mana's words, a stupid baby boy lying on its back is consummate as what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful, and invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments. This is the Buddha heaping scorn on that idea. So we're not going back to a childhood sense of, sense of oneness. We have to, we're moving forward to greater skillfulness. That's what the path is all about. There's another passage where the Buddha says, and in order to get you past the idea that you'd like to come back, you have to live off your mother milk. And he says, you're basically drinking her blood. That's where the milk comes from. I mean, you're inflicting that much on your mother when you come back. She's happy to do it, but still, you're taking a lot out of her. Okay. <laughs> okay. Talking about me. <laughs> okay. Passage 12. This is where the Buddha basically says the drama does have an essence. This holy life doesn't have as its reward gain, offerings, and fame, doesn't have as its reward the consummation of virtue, doesn't have its reward consummation of concentration, doesn't have its reward knowledge and vision. But the unprovoked awareness release, that is the purpose of this holy life, that is its heartwood or essence, that is its final end. Okay, there is this essence. The, the mind's re release is totally, as they say, unprovoked. Now this is getting to a theory they had back in those days, that some phenomena in the world are caused by properties, or datu, sometimes translated as element, and they happen when that element is provoked, and when it's not provoked, they go away. Like when you light a fire, you are provoking the fire element. When a flood comes, that's because the water element has been provoked. When, let's see, when there's a windstorm, the wind element has been provoked. Now what happens when any element, is, when any property is provoked, that is always going to be impermanent and there will come a point where it's not provoked anymore and the phenomenon will stop. 
Now the Buddha does talk about a nirvana element, but it's not one that can be provoked, which means that when you attain it, it's not dependent on provocation of any kind, which means that it can be permanent. In other words, it's in this case it's outside of space, it's outside of time, so space and time aren't going to affect it. So it's totally beyond any kind of provocation, totally beyond any kind of um, any kind of conditioning at all. And that is the essence of the teaching. Now, anything that gets you there is part of the path. But there is a definite goal, there is a definite aim. So again, the romantic idea that the entire world is in flux, without any essence, um, this is where it differs from the Dharma. You also see a lot of this in the academic study of Buddhism when they talk about, well, that in the postmodern study there really is no essence of anything anywhere. So we have to assume that Buddhism has no essence, so it can be anything. But the Buddha himself wouldn't have agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Passage 13 goes on to reiterate this point. Those who regard non-essence as essence or see essence as non-essence don't get to the essence, ranging about in wrong resolves. But those who know essence as essence and non-essence as non get to the essence, ranging about in right resolves. So you have to see there are some things in the tradition that are non-essential, but there are certain things that are essential. Sara. What's the Pali word for essence? Sara is essence. Sara. Mm-hmm. It's S-A-Macron or O-N. Or A. The next statement, this next batch of passages talks about the essence. Passage 14 basically makes the point that you can't say when the six senses contact media cease, you can't say, you shouldn't try to say that there is anything else or there isn't anything else or there both is and both isn't or neither is or isn't because you're dealing in babancha. We often think of babancha, that's what the word objectification is translated here, is translating here. We often think of a babancha as, you know, just your mind running wild. Like you're meditating, you have a babancha attack, and you're thinking for the whole, the whole retreat. Sometime, I knew this one woman who was taking a retreat back at IMS, and she told me she spent the entire retreat trying to figure out which parts of the building were original and which ones were added on, <laughs> and in what order. <laughs> That's not babancha. It's just misuse of your time. <laughs> babancha is basically thinking in terms of I am. And then all the, in other words, thinking in terms of becoming. What are you and what is the world in which you live? And so we, and as we start thinking about the goal, because we tend to live in becoming, we like to think. We try to carry our concepts of becoming into the goal. Would I exist? Would I not exist? Both? Neither? And the Buddha is saying, just put, and Asara Buddha here is just saying, put those aside. Any way that you might formulate this, you're engaging in babancha, and that's going to get in the way of you're actually attaining it. Um, passage 15, the Buddha is talking about 
basically in that little verse down at the bottom. The consciousness without surface, endless, radiant all around, has not been experienced through the earthness of earth, the liquidity of liquid, the fireiness of fire, the windiness of wind, or the allness of the all. The all here is defined as the six senses and their objects. So this consciousness of that is there in nirvana is not known through the senses, it's something outside the senses. So there is that consciousness. You wouldn't talk about it, you existing or not existing in that, but there is this sense of consciousness. Passage 16 goes on to say, even though you can't say that it's either exists or doesn't exist, it should be experienced. So that dimension should be experienced where the eye or vision ceases and the perception of form fades. That, that dimension should be experienced where the ear ceases and the perception of sound fades, so on through the senses. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates the word experienced here as understood, but it's not understood. You, have to, you want to experience it directly. So even though you can't describe it as existence or non-existence, you can experience it. Passage 17, 18, and 19, you can read these at home, are the Buddha's assertion that there is an unfabricated dimension. Passage 20 goes on to make the point that this, these are the three characteristics of the unfabricated, i.e. no arising, no passing away, no alteration. I mean, it's there. There's no arising or passing away. It's just there. Boy, I put a lot of passages in here. Okay. Um, passage, passages 21 and 22 make the point that when you attain stream entry, one of the things you discern is that there, this attainment cannot be found in any other way. In other words, you can't, can't achieve this through anything but the path. So it's not that there are many alternative paths to the goal, there's just this one path. And when you hit the goal, you realize that that's, there's no other way there. We're in passage 21 and 22. And then that the path is the path there. Um, passage 23 makes the point that the Buddha was simply rediscovering an old path that others had discovered before. He wasn't making up anything new. Excuse me, I'm sorry. This, oh, this other one, passage 23. Let's go over it for a bit. Ananda's talking to someone here. He says, Suppose that there was a royal frontier city with strong ramparts, strong walls and arches, and a single gate. In it would be a wise, competent, intelligent gatekeeper to keep out, those, keep out those he didn't know and to let in those he did. Walking along the path and circling the city, he wouldn't see a crack or an opening in the walls big enough for even a cat to slip through. <laughs> I like that line. Although he wouldn't know that so-and-so many creatures enter or leave the city, he would know this. Whatever large creatures enter or leave the city, all enter or leave it through this gate. In the same way, the Tathagata does not endeavor to have all the cosmos or half of it or a third of it led to release by means of his dharma. Because he can't, he can't force other people to do this. But he does know this. All those who have been led, are being led, or will be led to release from the cosmos have done so, are doing so, or will do so, having abandoned the five hindrances, those defilements of awareness that we can discern, 
having well established their minds in the four establishments of mindfulness and having developed as they have come to be the seven factors for awakening. So here they're saying, this is the way into the gate, or this is the way out, and everybody who's going to do this is going to have to do it this way. And this is one of the signs of awakening, knowing that that's the case. Any questions any of that? We'll move on. Yes. So he's saying this is the only way to, to do it. And the question I've always had is um, these beings in other religions, you know, purportedly in like whatever deep contemplative prayer or whatnot, um, have they been able, are they doing this in a different it. form, mm-hmm. or whether well, prayer gets them into deep samadhi, they're mm-hmm. they've, they're living a life of virtue, mm-hmm. of the you know deep generosity, you know they're they're shedding, their they're renunciating, as such renouncing renouncing yeah. renouncing. Yeah, I mean, no, no. Um, so are they actually coming to this oneness and breaking through? Without, well, you know, again, again, the question is, what questions are they asking? What are their views that they that bring them in there? And you know, just because a person is trained in a particular tradition doesn't mean they always stick to that tradition. So it leaves off open the possibility that somebody in another tradition could be you know, inspired somehow to actually follow this path. You know, Davis can come and talk to them. Who knows? You know? Feeling sorry for some poor Christian monk or nun stuck away in some cloister, <laughs> and say, "Hey, how about trying this?" You know. So, so if they leave themselves to the path of open, where the mind does become flexible enough to be answering. Yeah, but, but they would have to see it in these ways. They would have to have these views as part of their path. And when they came out, they couldn't talk about God doing this for them. Because again, just the idea that there was a God doing this for them means that they missed an important part of the, the awakening experience. Well, and often would it be that even if they had experienced this, those teachings would be would be really badly um, translated from whomever they're talking with. It's, it's, you can't really write a history of enlightenment. This is where the historical method breaks down. Because we don't know what's going on inside the minds of people, where they pick things up, how they express things to themselves. The only test for this is, you know, you do it yourself. And it's likely if any of those beings had experienced it, in the context that that they were, their groups would go way off with it. It wouldn't even be close to... Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's the way. It's not necessarily that you have to be taught in the Buddhist tradition, but when you're trained in another tradition, there are lots of traditions that actually get in the way of this. You get the state of oneness and you're told, never question this, never deviate from this sense of oneness, or else you're going to go to hell. But, I mean, there are even Buddhist traditions that say this. And it seems, though, in, in all of those traditions, there are, there are I would say, mavericks, mm-hmm. people who have gone beyond what yeah. mm-hmm. they've been told to do mm-hmm. and see, oh, no, this is... Not right anyway. So that, that it leaves open the possibility that there are individuals who have done this one way or another. 
But the fact it would have to be this way that it's done, regardless of what tradition they were practicing it to be originally. Given the fact that there are mavericks in the world. I think I heard, I heard this correctly, but the gentleman over there, when he couched the question, the first part of the question, he said, experience this oneness. Okay, well, this is not oneness. Well, that's not the as you've been saying, it's okay, not well, the same you, as you, you could, Okay, it's not the same. But suppose you hit this oneness in your meditation, and you start taking it apart. I think it's what, that's what he meant. Yeah. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. Question in the back. Uh, the concept I've had a hard time, always had a hard time understanding is um, the concept of karma and with it rebirth, reincarnation. Uh, what did the Buddha mean by that? I knew that in India at that time it was a widely believed belief. And uh, what proof did the Buddha give for that? I mean, he, what questions did he ask and to give a proof uh, for that? And how important is belief that in to Buddhist practice. That's a whole weekend. <laughs> um, the Buddha actually meant that the following death there is rebirth. It's the same process by which you, you take on a new becoming after death in the same way that you take on a new becoming as you go from one thought world to the next world, thought world. It's essentially the same process. But what proof did he actually The only give? proof that he gave, he said he couldn't prove it, but he said if you adopt this as a working hypothesis, you are more likely to act skillfully. But it's not necessarily so. It's one of those things you can't prove. I mean, he'd experienced it, but you can't take everything you've experienced out and show it to everybody and say, I can prove this to you. But he did say it's a a skillful assumption. There's a whole book on this topic called The Truth of Rebirth. And one misunderstanding we have is that it was the widespread belief in India at the time. And actually, the, the Buddhist canon reports lots of people who did not believe in rebirth or who were dubious about it. So it wasn't just you know, an un- unexamined assumption that the Buddha was passing on. He consciously had to take this as something he was going to choose to, choose to teach. And he, and he didn't just take on every issue that was around at the time. He was already saying questions about the cosmos, the nature of the self. Those were hot issues at the time, but he, he didn't touch on them. But the question of whether there is or is not rebirth was one that he chose to focus on and take a stand. But it's in, in line with you know, what he taught to the Galamas, which is on passage 25. The question is, if you take on this teaching, what kind of actions result? And not only just rebirth, but also the conception that rebirth is shaped by action, by karma. will lead you to be very careful in how you act. But for, for the kind of fleshing out of that, you might want to look at that, the book, The Truth of Rebirth. But again, it's a belief. Yeah, he says, you know, this is a working assumption. And that's all. Until you prove it through your practice. You must prove it to yourself. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. Passage 24, this is the image of you know, trying to get milk out of the cow by twisting its horn. 
and if you do the path properly, it's going to, you're going to get the milk, i.e. you learn how to pull, take the milk out of the udder. You don't get it by twisting the horn. <clears throat> I've piled a lot of passages in here, huh? Okay, passage 26. With pa- excuse me, passage 25 was the Kalamas. I just want to underline one thing. It's, this is often taken as the Buddha's free charter of free inquiry. But look at what he's saying. Um, first full paragraph on page 10. Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by law. Okay, everyone looks at that part and says, ah, the Buddha's saying you don't have to follow the Pali Canon. But then he also goes, don't go by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, or agreement through pondering views, by probability. In other words, the normal ways that we tend to come to decisions about things, i.e. reasoning through, they make sense compared with our other views. That can't be taken as a guide either. And then back again, of course, the, or by the thought this contemplative is our teacher. That in itself is not proof. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, the word qualities here is dhamma, so it can also mean teachings. These qualities are blameworthy. These qualities are criticized by the observant. Okay, it's not just what you see, but you also look around and see what observant people say. So it's a balancing of what you've seen in your own actions and also taking into consideration the words of the wise. When they're adopted and carried out, they lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And again, when you know that these are skillful, blameless, praised by the observant, when adopting carried out lead to welfare and happiness, then you should enter into and remain in them. So for existence with a belief on rebirth, adopting that actually leads to a lot more skillful action than adopting the belief that you know, there is no rebirth and there are no consequences to actions. And some people say, well, I'll just take an agnostic position on that and say I don't know. It's like going down to a financial advisor and saying, what's going to happen in the stock market? And the financial advisor says, I don't know. You go someplace else. <laughs> well, yeah, of course you don't know, but what, you know, given that what you see, what, what's the best work, working hypothesis for doing something with my money? Should I not invest it? Should I invest it? Where should I invest it? You need to make some hypotheses on that. This is what passage 26 is. These are some of the working hypotheses that the Buddha has you adopt as right view. There is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. In other words, giving actually does lead to results. There are fruits and results of good and bad actions. There is this world and the next world. There is mother and father. In other words, you have a debt of gratitude for the goodness that your parents have done for you. Make sure Leo understands that. Where is his parents right now? Off looking after him. There are contemplatives and Brahmins who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves. In other words, they're not just guessing. They've known through their experience that this is actually true. Okay, this is a statement of conviction, which you then take, work, use as a working hypothesis, and then you can confirm it for yourself with awakening. Any questions on that? Yes. I think earlier 
on, you said something about in Buddhism there's true and there's false, and also um, at the same time um, there's the working hypothesis model of seeing what leads to good results and what leads to bad results. Um, and so how, how do these two things work together? Like the working hypothesis is until there's direct realization? Or? Right, until you've, had, you've, worked, you've used that until you find that mm-hmm. you've tested it enough so you know that it really is true. Because there's some truths that the Buddha said that you would look at and immediately know from your own experience already that this mm-hmm. is true. And the others who say, that he's, he's making, he's, this is going to require some assumptions that I can't prove yes or no. I mean, the thing about his working hypothesis is that they never defy logic. Mm-hmm. It's not like some religions that I will remain unnamed where they ask you to believe in things that are totally, mm-hmm. you know, go against reason. But like the, the question, do you have free will or do you not have free will? Mm-hmm. You can't sit down and prove it. Because if you give a proof, then someone say, well, you were determined to have made that proof just now. <laughs> and you'd never get to anywhere. But if, which one, by taking which one as a hypothesis, will you act more skillfully and will you be able to act in a way that leads to the end of suffering? That's the, that's the test. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Passage 27, I'll leave this for you to read for your entertainment at home. But I like this, the assembly train in Bombast. Okay. The case where in any assembly where the discourses that are targeted deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent, conducted with emptiness, are recited. The monks don't listen, don't lend ear, don't set their hearts on knowing them, don't regard them as worth grasping or mastering. But when discourses that are literary works, the works of poets, artful in sound, artful in expression, the work of outsiders, words of disciples are recited. They listen, they lend ear, they set their hearts on knowing them. They regard them as worth grasping and mastering. Yet when they have mastered that dharma, they don't cross-question one another about it, don't dissect it. How is this? What is the meaning of this? They don't make open what isn't open, don't make plain what isn't plain, don't dispel doubts on its various doubtful points. This is called an assembly trained in bombast, not in cross-questioning. there's a lot of modern dharma, which is just that. The work of outsiders, artful in expression, artful in sound. And they don't want you to quiz them on the meanings. Okay. Passage 28 is, the Buddha is saying, you really want to be clear when you quote the Buddha, quote him for what he said. Don't quote him as saying things he didn't say. And then finally, passages 30, 29 and 30 talk about the disappearance of the Dharma. Okay. This is where he compares the Dharma to gold and what he calls the counterfeit of the true Dharma as compared to counterfeit gold. Okay, once Naran Dharma is taught in the world, and people have questions about is this really Dharma? And even when they hear true Dharma, they're dubious about it, which creates confusion. And look at the five quality, downward leading qualities. This is the third paragraph that tend to confusion and disappearance of the true, true Dharma. There's a case where the monks, nuns, male lay followers, and female lay followers live without respect, without deference for the teacher. They live without respect, without deference for the Dharma, for the Sangha, for the training, for concentration. Okay, look, you, know, you have to watch out when people start 
denigrating the Dharma or the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The denigrate concentration <laughs> that leads to the, the loss of the true Dharma. So it's our, our, it's our responsibility to keep the Dharma alive, to have respect for these five things and not denigrate them. I think what's interesting is under this one he pulls out the training and concentration. Actually, concentration comes in the training. But I think he wants to emphasize that that's probably the first part of the training that people are going to have disrespect for. Saying that you don't need strong concentration. So watch out for that. And then finally, in passage 30, he gives the, the analogy of the summoner. There once was a time when the Dasaras had a large drum called the summoner. Whenever summoner was split, the Dasaras inserted another peg in it, until the time came when the summoner's original wooden body had disappeared and only a conglomeration of pegs remained. And in the same way, this, the true Dharma disappears, again, by listening to words that are beautiful, but are not connect, connected with a goal, and disregarding those that are connected with a goal. So the Buddha doesn't have much hope for improvements in the Dharma that would come later. He doesn't see them as a good thing, or as and he knows that change is inevitable, but he doesn't say that it's because change is inevitable you can't see it as a good thing. Not every change is going to be good. So again, this leaves open the question, trying to see what teachings that you know, make the Dharma palatable or available to Westerners are actually helping you get to the essence and which teachings are going to get in the way of the essence. And from when we looked at you know, what, where Buddhist Romanticism goes, I mean, by cutting off the idea of an essential, unchanging or eternal truth about how to put an end to suffering, Buddhist Romanticism actually gets in the way. So you've got to be careful about it. I've run out of things to say. <laughs> I can't believe I talked that much this day. Um, any last questions, comments, queries, jokes? <laughs> no jokes, no puns. Okay. Uh, why would they? I don't know. That, okay. Um, I'm just wondering how they would conclude that uh, there is no other way. Like once they arrived or achieved unconditioned, it's like it's clear there is no other way to get here. Because you saw what you did to get there very clearly. And there's there are states of mind that, or breakthrough states that people have, and there's an, there's a term for it which is really unfortunate. They call it neurotic breakthrough. But what it means is you've had a neurosis and you've finally broken through the neurosis. And sometimes people will mistake that for awakening. But there's no insight into karma, because it's the insight into karma that really makes a difference. Secondly, when you step outside of space and time, you begin to see this suffering that you've been involved in is not just one lifetime. It goes back before. You may not remember the details, but you know there's more that led up to this. And there's no other way to get there aside from dismantling fabricated states, which is basically what right view does to you. You see every other view as a kind of fabrication, let go of it, and then you finally have to turn that around in right view itself. And you realize there's no other view that's going to lead you there. That's how you know.
So you've spoken, I think, in terms of um, the Dharma being absolute or there's an essence to it, something unchanging. Um, um, my thinking is that, yes, this applies to the, the ideas of the Dharma, but in terms of our actions, um, wouldn't it be true that there are no absolutes that we might have to, when, when faced with uh, two two evils, we might have to choose the lesser of evils. For instance, you know, maybe there are situations where you'd have to tell a lie in order to uh, uh, save uh, many people's lives from the actions of a wrongdoer. Okay, and choices, in that case, neither choice would help you on the path. So this has... Whatever you choose to do that has more to do with achieving a you know a, a good outcome in, in the world rather than but it would be off your, your suffering. Way. And so, what the demand is: if you want to stay on the path, figure out some way to save those lives without lying. Or if you have to shoot the guy, don't shoot to kill. So it requires, and the precepts require that you be very intelligent in weighing these things and figuring ways. How basically, a precept is a promise you make to yourself, and then in order to keep that promise, it's going to require a lot of ingenuity. People have come up with thought experiments where there's like no, uh, no, no way to achieve the desired outcome. Is why are you, what, you know, how about thinking up thought experiments where you, know, you can figure out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, because sometimes these things do happen in real life, yeah. where there's, you know, you're not able to find a way to mm-hmm. to save lives well, or whatever. To, well, to stay on the path, then the issue would be, okay, I've got to keep my action in line with my promise. Maybe I can't save those lives. And who knows, if you told the life, you'd still save their lives. You know, there's that horrible movie, Sophie's Choice, you know. Yeah. Well, she ends up having to choose, you know, one of children, one child over the other, and I think they end up killing both children anyhow. Mm-hmm. And so, what you've done is you've destroyed the, ch- the love of one child. And so you have to say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to stick by my precepts. And if the Nazis come banging on the door and ask if you have Jews in the attic, you say, me, Jews in the attic. How do you think, I mean, basically, it's not like you, you put Jews in your attic and you think, I hope the Nazis never come. You say, I've got to do something to get on the good side of the Nazis so they don't suspect me. The Schindler's List solution. So when you're, holding, when you're holding the precepts, you don't wait until the crisis comes. You think, okay, this crisis is going to come, how do I prepare? It's like making up your mind you're not going to kill termites. Okay, you've got to build your house so that the termites can't get in. And it is possible. Even yeah, Thai people can do it. But this I mean, and, I, and I'm saying that in, in terms of low-tech. There's a very low-tech, and they've been doing this for centuries. And yet you cannot prepare for every eventuality. You can't think of all the things. But you can prepare more than people do. You can prepare more than people do prepare. Yes. Because one of the, one of the um, 
aspects of right effort is trying to prevent unskillful states from arising. And so you've got to think through, okay, I know this, I can anticipate this is going to arise, how do I not act unskillfully in this particular situation? So part of your meditation should go in that direction. And not just kind of be in the present moment, present moment, present moment, hope that the present moment takes care of everything. That's heedless. But you, there are certain things you can anticipate. If you're going to have Jews in your attic, you've got to watch out for you know, what are you going to say to the Nazis before they come. And then you're prepared. Yes, in the background. Way in the back. Uh, so, uh, I'm confused now. Uh, do you think there are, there are uh, right and wrong answers in, in terms of, uh, you know, suffering if you're faced with a situation like the other gentleman just pointed out? Okay, there are, skill, there, are skill, there are answers that are more or less skillful. There are ways of dealing with situations. Some, some ways of dealing with the situation are more skillful than others. And you, by taking a precept, you're putting basically playing tennis with a mint up. You know. that you've got to figure out, okay, I've got to get past this in a way that doesn't break any of the precepts. And it's a challenge, and it's a way of developing your discernment. At the same time, you develop compassion and stick by the rules, that, the promises you've made to yourself. Question around here. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Mike, where's the mic? Okay. Evelyn, you've been doing very good duty with Mike today. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've talked about the Buddhist romantics uh, and then the influence on how we're, how, well, the romantics and how we're, influ- how we're interpreting the Dhamma. Um, and we've talked about the fact that these ideas are all over the place in our contemporary Western society, our liberal arts education, mm-hmm. and that's how you sell an education. Telling people that they have that was me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. By telling people that they can, you know, have an authentic response to the world, that mm-hmm. you know they should go big, they should go out. That people, you know, our students in, in our colleges and universities, in our liberal arts schools, are being told that they can go out there and you know be their authentic selves and respond to the world in a way that's unique to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's why they're being given this education, and so the the the, the language is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's a chance of rescuing the Dhamma from all of that, not just you know the people who are misinterpreting the actual Buddhist text? And I think it's it's there. There is an alternative way of looking at it, as long as you realize there is a distinction, because yeah. the, the lines have been blurred over the past several decades. And I think it's time to sort of make a clear delineation. Okay, this, this way of looking at things has some things in common with the Dharma, but it really begins to deviate in other parts. Um, what you have to do is ask people, well, living this authentic life, are you happy? Is there any stress? Is there any suffering? And it takes some people a while to realize, yeah, there's a lot of suffering there. Maybe it may be better to look at things in a different way. I mean, in my own case, I had the advantage, and I see it as an advantage. I've heard other people say it's not, um, that I actually studied the Dharma in Thailand in a totally different culture where the you know, things I was brought up to believe were 
strange. And I would say things to my teacher about what I was going through and he'd kind of look at me. And the fact that he looked at me in that way, that in and of itself, I, felt was, I realized later was a gift. You know? That, oh, it, maybe what I'm thinking is strange. Let's go back and re-examine my presuppositions. Um, I mean, one thing I learned in intellectual history is that you know, every culture has its suppositions. And you dig deep enough and you'll find them, the things that they're unconscious about. And it was simply a matter of well, turning that more deeply on my own suppositions, um, including intellectual history. <laughs> um, but you have, to, you have to get to the person to point where they're ready to see, well, maybe this is not working and I want something else. And that's an individual thing. But I think it is useful to get the word out there that you know, romantic dharma is not dharma. I mean, I call this Buddhist romanticism. I didn't call this romantic Buddhism. We're still in romanticism when we're dealing in these terms. We haven't made the shift to the dharma. But I think for individual people, and you say, okay, this, this, is not, this is not enough for me, I want something better, then they're ready to hear. And then you know, it's just basically learning how to use. I mean, skillful, skillful means means, on the one hand, taking people where they are and using what they already believe to get them out of what they believe. That's one way, and that, that again, it's an individual matter. And in other cases, it's you've got to say, okay, there's this alternative way, and it works a lot better. Give it a try. That's the best I can think of. Is that a good note to end on? Okay, well, thank you for your attention. I'm impressed that you sat all the way through this. <laughs> I have a couple of announcements before people run off. Um, first, Tony told me to remind you